0: Well you can literally hear the sound of rocks on the roof.
1: That's the voice of Teveta Vahai, a finance manager in Nukualofa, in a dramatic Facebook video he made on the 14th of January, which showed showers of debris falling from the sky after the eruption of the Tongahongahapai volcanic island. Now, that was heard all over the region and detected all over the world and captured in jaw-dropping satellite images, which later starkly showed how huge chunks of the island had been obliterated. They were blasted 20 kilometres into the air, some of it coming back down again, as could be heard in this Facebook live stream from former Fijian journalist Ilya (laughs) Satora. Online eyewitness accounts like those in the immediate aftermath left no doubt about how serious this was, though it was far from clear just how widespread the damage was or how deadly the disaster had been. And in the hours and the days that followed, getting the facts from a distance here and getting actual news reports out from there became all but impossible. The phones were dead and the cable-carrying internet communications to and from Tonga was cut. The acting United Nations coordinator in the Pacific told RNZ this.
0: Um, I've worked in a lot of emergencies, but uh, this is one of the hardest
1: in terms of communicating and trying to, to get information from there. With the the severing of the sea cable that comes from Fiji, they're just cut off uh, completely. So we're relying 100% on satellite uh, phones. And five days after the eruption, RNZ Pacific's manager Moira Tuilepa-Taylor told Morning Report things weren't much better.
0: It's the first disaster where there has been complete silence. You know, often we were able to get some government disaster management office. We just heard nothing. So that has really made a lot of people very anxious. I know that the Australian High Commission has been providing a sat phone, and so people have been trying to reach their families via there just to make sure that they're OK.
1: And even those sat phones they were relying on weren't always reliable, with all the gunk in the atmosphere interfering intermittently with the signals. So... What other communication options were there?
0: You always have people involved in ham radio and they're always saying we're very useful in an emergency. Are there any people out there with ham radio and have they spoken to people in Tonga? News Talk ZB Talk host Marcus Lush on the
1: 18th of January with a good question. His listeners didn't have the answer but others were also looking, such as a ham radio group in Australia, though their news wasn't good.
2: Now, there are no known permanent amateur radio operators uh, in Tonga. I spoke to Roly ZL1BQD. He activated as part of a de-expedition using the callsign A35RR. Roly said that he's involved with one of their local FM broadcast stations uh, up on the main island, but he's been unable to get hold of them in any way yet. And
1: that same day, a San Francisco CBS TV station reported that ham radio operators there were also transmitting in vain. The antenna above his Walnut Creek home is pointed
0: toward Tonga. But so far he hasn't been able to pick up anything recognisable. Any news, especially positive news, is being received gratefully by friends and family who so far have been left to imagine the worst.
1: Now, no news organisation wants to leave people to imagine the worst days after a disaster when even the basics like the number of deaths couldn't be confirmed. Now, the best reporting option is, of course, to go and see for yourself. But in the COVID era, that is even more complicated. Last Tuesday, TVNZ's One News reported this.
2: To the latest news out of Tonga, an Australian naval ship taking aid to the island nation is now a COVID carrier. HMAS Adelaide left for Tonga last Friday carrying much needed supplies, but at least 23 of the more than 600 crew members have since tested positive for COVID.
1: So with tens of thousands of Tonga New Zealanders desperate for news, how did our reporters here tackle the task of reporting that story with so little to go on? I asked News Hub's Pacific correspondent, Michael Mora.
0: It was unprecedented in terms of the duration of the blackout, even during Category 4 and 5 cyclones. I have in personally experienced a situation where phones, email, even social media, have been down for such a long period of time. We had contact with our friend and journalist in Nukolofa, Marion Kupu, just after the eruption. But after making that initial contact on the phone, We couldn't reach her at all until five days later. So everything went down in Tonga. In fact, the Prime Minister told me just one local radio station was functional after the eruption and able to transmit, but it's still quite difficult. I mean, even interviewing the PM, I was texting him on his sat phone and then he went to another building where the internet was quite good um, and that allowed us to do a Zoom. One of the first places where news and information came from was the Ha'apai Island group. So a reverend there managed to get a connection up using a setup provided by the University of South Pacific and notified Jenny Salisa at the time that there had been no deaths. Now, I've travelled to Ha'apai a number of times before and have used this connection to get stories back to New Zealand during Cyclo-E and in 2014, and it's quite an small sort of makeshift building on a hill. I don't know exactly how it all works, but it worked for us in terms of being able to get internet capacity to send stories back in twenty fourteen and this has been a key method of communication.
1: And I suppose at that point yourself and your editors, they're trying to make a judgment, okay, so is that the extent of devastation? Now it's a clean up thing. Or are you sitting there two or three days in still thinking, we don't know whether this is actually now worsening and things are absolutely desperate. And this is a story kind of should be on the way up, you know, internationally.
0: the relevance and importance of the story actually increased. In the absence of being able to speak to people on the ground, the story swiftly shifted to the agonising weight for families here in New Zealand to hear if their loved ones were OK. And so that's how I went about covering the story. We eventually established, of course, that the outer islands like Mango and Atatā had been wiped out, all homes destroyed. And so I went about tracking down people who Uh, you know, grew up on Māngo, who could provide some insight from New Zealand about who lived there, what the injuries were, um, what it was like before the eruption.
1: A reporter like yourself, you would want to go there and see this for yourself and report back. I'm sure you still do, but even with all the might and logistics of the Royal Australian Navy, you know, one of their lead ships there has now been described as a COVID carrier. And COVID is complicating what already would have been a challenging kind of reporting trip to get
0: there, right? Absolutely. I mean, in normal times without COVID-19, I would have been on the first flight out of Auckland. Attention then, of course, turned to whether we could travel with the New Zealand Defence Force. But, of course, their main concern is also COVID-19, and they're working closely with the Tongan government, and the Tongan authorities have been very clear that any aid that is delivered is done so in a contactless manner. There's also the strict the Tongan government has in place for entry to the kingdom in the first place. Even if you're a resident of Tonga and returning on one of these packed-out repatriation flights, you must then do three weeks in MIQ before re-entering the communities.
1: Well, RNZ Pacific uh, has, of course, a team dedicated to uh, covering issues from the whole region every day. So I'm sure they will keep on top of the story as it develops, as we get into the recovery phase. Um, But for yourself on a national media outlet, uh, but just the the scale and the drama of this eruption disaster might actually be something that piques general interest in Tonga specifically, but also in in, uh, Life in the Pacific for a general news audience.
0: Yeah, I think it absolutely will. And interestingly, when the first NZDF pictures came out and we were doing stories on that, our digital team got in touch the following morning and said, this has gone gangbusters online. Um, tens of thousands of people around the world have been watching it and they've been watching the entire duration of the story. There is huge interest in what's happening in the Pacific. We do have a huge population in New Zealand, this event um, will certainly heighten interest amongst the New Zealand audience and the world.
1: That's Michael Murrah, News Hub's investigations reporter and also the network's Pacific correspondent for the past decade. Now, one of Michael's colleagues in that time at NewsHub was the political editor Tova O'Brien, who's been in the news over the holidays also, but not with her reporting. Instead, she's been the subject of the story about leaving NewsHub's owner Discovery to join MediaWorks' new talk radio station, Today FM, as the host of a new show, which was due to start soon. But it can't start until March now because she's been barred from working for her new employer for three months after her current one enforced a restraint of trade clause in her contract. And in this week's Midweek Media Watch, Media Watch's Hayden L talked to Karen Hay about the fallout from that and a bit of bad blood
2: between the broadcasters. Even if we're just talking about competition for advertisers, does that mean she can't move to Facebook or Google, which is the media's primary competitors for digital ad revenue? And I mean, maybe that's an exaggeration, but that was pretty much what Tova O'Brien claimed in this uh, employment hearing. Uh, she said, basically, if this definition of competition gets upheld, then she'll be forced back into uh, bartending, which I think was her job before journalism. That's all she could basically do for these three months.
1: If you missed that, it's on the Media Watch page at rnz.co.nz, our section of the RNZ app, or you'll find it in our podcast feed. Midweek Media Watch last Wednesday was Media Watch's first offering since we went on a break last Christmas. But we were keeping our eyes and ears on what was going on in the media during the summer silly season.
0: One item is in hot demand.
2: The Panadol section is actually not
1: a single Panadol. There's just nothing. There's no lozenges, no lozenges. That was a woman called Jan on Morning Report last Monday talking to RNZ reporter Jordan Bond in an Auckland supermarket the morning after we all went into the red at midnight last Sunday. Now, along with everyone else's, journalists' hearts sank with that announcement at the prospect of the COVID crisis in the headlines every single day for the foreseeable future, again. And reporting stuff like the panic purchasing of paracetamol at Pack and Save, again. This time, it's because Omicron is here, ready or not. And there's been quite a lot of comment and reporting in the media lately about how we're really not. Not for the upcoming big sick, with as much as a third of a million of us possibly out of circulation all at once at its peak. This week there's also been handy how-to guides and -and cut-out-and-keep type stuff in the media about how to deal with Omicron as and when we catch it. And there's also complacency to confront too. As of last week, just over half of us eligible had bothered to get boosted. And then there are those actively undermining the effort. Last month, News Hub exposed a doctor in Kayapoy doling out dodgy COVID exceptions, she's now pivoted to making chocolate, and this week Stuff's Martin Van Bainen exposed a Rangiora signwriter printing fake vaccine passes for Koha, claiming it wasn't illegal. Still, the silver lining in all of this is that the vast bulk of us are better protected now. Last year, the so called year of the vaccine, The initial target to get beyond lockdowns was 90% of eligible people double-jabbed across all DHBs. And at the time, ZB's vocal sceptic Mike Hosking reckoned we'd hit a wall of resistance before 80%. Here's
0: the cold-hard reality. If they're going to stick hard and fast to 90%, as much as I'd like to say otherwise,
1: we are not getting there. They're having a rah-rah vaccine day this weekend. What result are they looking for? Who would know? And if we don't know, when is the end? And if they hit a wall of resistance, then what? Who would know? Well, we knew the wall was pretty puny when we did hit 90% of eligible people vaxxed before Christmas and didn't stop there. On January the 9th in the New Year, for example, RNZ reported this.
0: Auckland is just 3% short of having 100% of its eligible population fully vaccinated against COVID-19.
1: And 97% is a remarkable figure. And it ran through the day in RNZ's news that day, and News Hub and others shared the news as well. But in fact... Only one of three DHBs in the Auckland region, the smallest one, had hit that level. The average across all Aucklanders was more like 93%. RNZ's website later acknowledged... It was based on a statement from the
2: Ministry of Health which has since issued a correction.
1: But even though that was a bit misleading, it wasn't deliberate unlike this bid to get the media to report bad stuff about our COVID response.
0: I'm hiding something like five kids collapsing. I'm sure the DHB will put it. I'm sure the DHB will put it released out that of the case. Oh, OK. Yeah. So yeah. Are, are you kids, investigating kids? as reporters? Because that's the role of a reporter investigate.
1: Wouldn't you be going back in there and investigating? That's former TVNZ and RNZ host Liz Gunn, now a full-blown and full-throated conspiracy theorist. There, her fellow travellers were filming her harassing a TVNZ reporter on the street about why the media failed to report children collapsing after getting paediatric doses of the COVID vaccine. But the reason that wasn't in the news was... It was rubbish. The New Zealand Herald not only debunked those rumours but also chronicled what it called the sad descent down the rabbit hole of Liz Gunn while they were at it. Though she wasn't the only one ramping up fears about our kids for their own ends. If you go in there with your wagon, I'll tow your wagon away and I'll get the boys to blow it up. You and all your syringes will run you out of town, every school you try to go to. Brian Tamaki, once a self appointed bishop, now a self proclaimed apostle, also tagged as the Eft Apostle by critics, highlighting his ability to crowdfund from his own congregation. Now, at the time of that rant in Christchurch, he was on bail after organising other illegal protests. And when the police finally came to arrest him after that, the Herald's investigative reporter, David Fisher, was actually at Brian's place at the time. And catching those scenes was a bit of a bonus, after Brian Tamaki refused to be interviewed by the Herald that day on what he said were his lawyer's orders though that left David Fisher wondering why Brian hadn't taken to heart any legal advice about the consequences of breaching bail by turning up to further protests after his first arrest last month. Now, the COVID misinformation that Brian Tamaki and others have spread has certainly been taken to heart by some. The classic
2: example I get is, do your own research. You know what, I could read a scientific paper about Pfizer and I've had a look at a few of them and they're hard going. Do we not trust the MedSafe? Do we not trust the CDC in the States? Which has pretty high rigorous m- methods of
1: determining when something is safe. ZB's Summer Mornings host Tim Beveridge there on January the 18th, probably regretting his decision to ask the do-your-own-research crowd what they reckoned about vaccines for kids.
0: Because CDC is largely funded by the pharmaceutical companies, whereas the JVCI is a government-appointed body of experts. So mm. what
2: and what about MedSafe over here?
0: Well, I think MedSafe is out of its depth, to be quite honest.
2: Now, that
1: caller John said he had two science degrees, as well as two COVID jabs, and he said that he knew what he was talking about when he said that the UK's Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation didn't recommend blanket vaccination of under-15s there. But John was way off about the Centre for Disease Control in the US being Big Pharma-funded. Only 35 million US dollars of its annual budget comes from foundational grants or direct gifts, while 8 billion dollars of it comes from the US government in congressional appropriations. Next up on ZB that day was Ray, who took a lead from personal experience of heart surgery, word of mouth, and YouTube.
0: But I have no trust in the FDA or MedSafe. Why not? Have you watched the documentary Goat Stick?
2: No, no, I haven't watched the de- documentary.
0: Well, there, there, there's a few of those um, sort of programmes.
2: Plenty more where she
1: came from, though, on Talk ZB, looking in similar places online.
0: Hey, how's it going? Good, thing. Um, are people aware that this whole pandemic can be found on the World Economic Forum website? Uh,
2: Gary obviously lied to my producer there, um, but it doesn't get very far. I mean, the plandemic, give me a break. God's sakes. News Talk
1: ZB's Tim Beveridge there pleading for a break barely half an hour after asking the audience for their reckons. Though he did do a quick bit of his own research on the claims of caller John.
2: And the Joint Commission on Va- Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation in the UK has recommended vaccinations for about 330,000 younger children and also those living with someone who is immunosuppressed. So the argument of protecting your communities, they are going along with that as well and talks about the dose that's been given and that they will be reviewing it. And it's expected that they will approve the vaccine rollout among primary aged children in about a month. That was written mid-December. So just for a bit of added context on that.
1: A frustrated Tim Beveridge then pointed out that although the anti-vax minority is vocal and very cranky, there aren't actually all that many of them.
2: Uh, I can tell you from the text machine that the people who are triggered by this uh, the one or two percent who haven't got vaccinated, very triggered by it. So maybe, you know, have a cup of tea and a lie down.
1: However, the anti-vaxxers who fill the airtime on talk radio are not likely to take that advice either. And although they're a minority, there are plenty more on the pipeline with cherry-picked information and half-understood pseudoscience.
0: And UV penetrates everywhere. It can go everywhere. It can get into places that you can't wipe. No, well, look, John, everyone should be back at work in the next week or two, so try getting in touch again.
1: There was another caller called John telling host Francesca Rudkin last weekend that flooding MIQ with virus-killing UV light was the obvious answer. But when the BBC asked if this really could work, the boss of a specialist supplier to hospitals told them the one type of UV that could kill COVID is the deadly one that's filtered out by ozone in our atmosphere.
2: You would literally be frying people. You know that gritty feeling you get if you look at the sun? It's like that times ten just after a few seconds. Now,
1: while getting Covidiots on the line was no problem on talk radio, the Prime Minister's partner got called a bit of an idiot too after a pharmacy in Tauranga called him to say that a DJ mate of his was in the house wanting a rapid antigen test.
2: Well, I read a little bit about it yesterday and I thought, oh, God, what an idiot. <laughs> um, and I thought to myself, wonder how big a story this will be. And then I, um, I got the, my physical copy of the New Zealand Herald and there's a, uh, well, it's probably about a foot-high image of Clark Gayford that did indeed spark a summer mini-scandal
1: back in mid-January when Clark Gayford apologised for causing confusion, though he didn't address the claims of COVID corruption coming from political critics and talkback callers.
0: It was a dick move, and he's realised it was a dick move, and he's apologised for said dick move, and we've all made dick moves at some point in our lives.
1: But whether it was a super scandal or a simple dick move... This was the point, according to ZB's Tim Beveridge. You know, how should
2: the partners of Prime Ministers conduct themselves? Should they exclude themselves from Twitter? Should they exclude themselves from political conversations? I don't think so. Meanwhile in The
1: Herald, senior political reporter Thomas Coglan harked back to the Roman regime, quoting the maxim, Caesar's wife must be above suspicion. In secular New Zealand, where the Covid response is the closest thing we have to a state religion... It would be wise for political spouses to be as far away from the grit of the response as possible. And after that, News Talk ZB's Tim Dower cited another political COVID controversy earlier in the summer to National's COVID response spokesperson Chris Bishop.
0: On the scale of offending, how does it compare to a National MP going to an anti-vax rally? A lot of people make up their own mind about things.
1: Um. It was National's controversial list MP who drew attention to her own attendance at that anti-vax rally in Fanganui, not for the first time, in a Facebook post with a photo of her smiling in front of slogans from the anti-vax protest group Voices for Freedom. But after her leader Christopher Luxon rang up, she deleted the post and said this instead.
2: It has been pointed out to me that it could convey an anti-vaccination message, which was never my intention
1: though when The Herald's David Fisher trawled through her social media comments, he found dark accusations of government cover-ups in pursuit of sinister objectives and people who favoured freedom being unjustly labelled, she said, as anti-vaxxers. Harate Hipango’s support of liberty became a liability for her leader, who said there'll be no more messages inconsistent with the party's vaccination stance in the future. Now in an editorial last week the New Zealand Herald said it hoped for a similar pivot from Brian Tamaki who the paper said had painted himself into a corner or more precisely a remand cell though he got out of that last Wednesday and back home to a 24-hour curfew after successfully challenging his judge's no-bail ruling. The Herald reckoned, though, that now might be a good time for Brian Tamaki to walk the talk of Destiny Church's Man Up programme, which the Apostle himself says puts men on the wrong path back on the straight and narrow. His followers might even follow suit if he did, the Herald hoped wishfully. And the fact that anti-vaxxers are now on the outer, even though they make big news, was something ZB's Marcus Lush tried to point out the same night to a Brian Tamaki supporter called Joe.
0: How's that worked out for Bishop Tamaki? Look, he loves God. He's in jail. He's got of who Jokovic can't play the game he loves. Tumach, he's in jail. I mean, these are your heroes, Joe. Not working out so well for them, is it? The Omicron is not serious. You're not serious, Joe. Joe, can you promise me one thing? Yeah. Never ring again. Okay. Bye. Thanks. Appreciate it
1: if only dealing with all anti-vax outliers in the media was so simple. While some said that locking up Brian Tamaki made him a bit of a martyr, one commentator suggested he might actually have been auditioning for the reality TV show I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. Meanwhile, the best-known anti-vaxxer in the world was detained across the Tasman, creating enough for an entire new series of the Aussie reality show Border Patrol.
0: There's been a new twist in the Novak Djokovic case. Court papers claim he tested positive for COVID weeks ago, and it turns out it was the same day he was pictured mingling maskless with children.
1: That whole saga also served up more than a week's worth of bulletin-leading news worth its weight in ratings during the seasonal New Year news drought. And it also sparked some memorable lines from papers like Sydney's tabloid The Daily Telegraph, which dubbed it the Novak's jockey-viction, under the front-page headline, Return of Serb. Everyone had strong opinions about this, it seems, including these Channel 7 news anchors, whose off-air pre-bulletin chit-chat was captured in a rough recording and released online. that
0: Djokovic is a lying, sneaky yes. She's an asshole. asshole. <laughs> Like, whatever way you look at it.
1: Fell over his own f***ing lies, which is what happens, right? Yeah. Well, Seven's news chief said that sweary stuff's release was underhanded, cowardly and even illegal. But the source of the leak turned out to be a high-tech outfit that was offering automated on-screen captions for the broadcaster called AI Media. Now the paranoia of Novak Djokovic's rallies in Serbia also added legs to the yarn. Novak's father has just given the Serbian media one of the craziest statements I've ever seen, Eddie. I'll read you a bit of this now. He has told media, I have no idea what's going on. They're holding my son captive for five hours. If they don't let him go in half an hour, we will gather on the street. Can't believe that when I woke up this morning that this was unfolding. And even though this Serbia versus Straya tennis tussle had nothing much to do with us, editors here loved leading the news with it too.
0: Once innocent pictures attending an awards night followed by photos with children the next day.
1: While his family in Serbia claimed that Novak's hotel detention was torture for him, it emerged that he got special exercise gear and special gluten-free food and there was an irony in who Novak Djokovic was sharing that detention hotel with
0: dozens of refugees and asylum seekers being held in detention hotels in Melbourne. It's been all over global media, and that's what happens when, you know, the world's number one tennis player becomes involved. The fact that he was in the Park Hotel and at least experienced for just four days what, you know, these innocent refugees have, ex- have uh, had to suffer for over 3,000 days, uh, I'm hoping uh, at least is something positive to come out uh, of what's been an absolute mess.
1: Now, the Australian Immigration Minister finally decided to send the Serbian sportsman home on a Friday night, a decision his critics claimed was time to deflect media attention away from the government's bungled handling of COVID. And a similar accusation was levelled at the UK's Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who's reported to have a plan called Operation Red Meat to produce populist announcements designed to counter the string of party gate revelations as they crop up and the Led by Donkeys satire team made viral videos subjecting Boris Johnson to a line-of-duty-style anti-corruption grilling.
0: The party's over.
1: Those were meetings of people at work
2: talking about... Mother of God, you must think we were born yesterday,
1: fella. And Boris Johnson was even getting it in the neck on TikTok from comedy songwriter Manya Chihuahua, who was channelling Usher.
2: To kick me the royal family.
1: And even further down the age profile, Partygate even outraged a five-year-old in a video made by the Tory-supporting tabloid The Sun.
0: The Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, he just went to a party in up.
1: But even the satirist started to say, I give up, when the next party revealed in the media was Boris Johnson's own birthday celebration after this insult to the royal family.
2: The British Prime Minister's office has apologised to the Queen for two staff parties at Number 10 Downing Street on the night before Prince Philip's funeral. And there was an extra
1: irony there. That story was broken by the paper Boris Johnson worked for when he was formerly a journalist.
2: The report included claims of dancing and that a staff member was sent out with a suitcase to a nearby shop to stock up on alcohol.
1: Can reputations like those of Boris Johnson and Novak Djokovic ever come back from such a trashing in the media this past month? They can perhaps turn to one man who was the public enemy number one in Melbourne 14 years ago this month.
0: A teenager holds an alcohol-fuelled party for hundreds of kids while his unsuspecting parents are on holiday.
2: Police cars smashed as officers tried to disperse hundreds of teenage revelers. Police have their own plans.
0: He needs
2: to learn a lesson, and I think that one way or another, we'll do that.
1: But back then, Corey, party boy, Worthington, refused to be shamed on national TV.
2: Take a few glasses and apologise to us. I'll say sorry, but I'm not taking all my glasses. Well, we've got to go, but I suggest you go away and uh, take a good, long, hard look at yourself. I have. Everyone has. They love it.
1: But this month, he re-emerged as an advisor to an insurance company on the hazards of renting homes to people like he was back in 2008.
2: Because I'm a change man. I've left all that behind. And that's why ShareCover has asked me to be your guide to help protect your holiday home from harm. So let's identify some red flags. Guess who asks if they can fit 20 people in a house that sleeps Four. Red flag. Guess who have neon green mullets with frosted tips? Two red flags.
1: So with the right attitude and connections, there's always a way back in the media. Though, like Corey Party Boy Worthington, you might just have to play the long game. Well, that's all from Media Watch this weekend. We'll be back with more on the media at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show and then back again with Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.